0: entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator,
1: Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 378. Hey, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. This week's guest is Scott Krone. Scott got his start by studying architecture. Having started his master's program in 1991, Scott has gone on to found Coda Management Group, where they specialize in self-storage commercial assets. That's what we're going to be talking about today is the world of self-storage. Really fun conversation we just wrapped up with Scott, so I'm excited to bring him on. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. All right, today welcome on the show, Scott Krohn. Scott, hey, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon.
2: Thanks, Jacob, for having me. I really look forward to this.
1: Yeah, it's our pleasure. Well, Scott, before we get into who you are, what you do, all that good stuff, let's start with why do you do what you're doing in this real estate space? Let's start with the why.
2: Well, I think I fell into it really. The why? I always enjoyed the creativity of development, design, and then I saw that the benefit of being the builder as well. So that's how I sort of got into this whole realm of being the developer and then doing design build. So it was really just controlling the process. That's the reason why we backed into it. I love it. Tell us who you are. I grew up in the Chicagoland area and I pursued architecture a little bit in high school. I went to a large enough high school where he had that and I could do a little bit of it. But I, um, I chose not to go into college for that because I also wanted to play college athletics. And so I thought if I went to a tech school and I didn't like it, then I'd be stuck there so I chose to go liberal arts. But then my senior year, I learned a programs where I could get back into architecture. And so I ended up pursuing a master's of architecture at Illinois Institute of Technology, which brought me back to Chicago. And I got connected with my professor, who was a TA. I was his TA, I should say. Yeah. But he owned a real estate development company. And I began working on multifamily immediately during my postgraduate work.
1: Were you always drawn to kind of like the buildings and the actual structures of things in the real estate world from an early age?
2: I was always enjoyed building and creating things at an early age. And so, you know, architecture is like the most three dimensional form of that, right? Yeah. And so it was, you know, when I got into graduate school, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to pursue in terms of whether it was residential or multifamily or mixed use or commercial. But when I was working with him, he was one of the few professors that was actually having a studio work on real life things. And to me, that's what excited me the most is like, let me work on stuff that's actually going to happen, not this theoretical stuff. Or you know, how do I actually learn this? And I think that was the difference between me being as a graduate student versus an undergraduate. I was like, I want to learn everything I can to prepare me for my career now that I know what I want to do. And so I just dove deep into that.
1: So how'd you use that kind of into the uh, real estate investing side of things?
2: Well, so my first negotiations with him is, he said, you're my TA, so you have to work in my office for free. And I said, (laughs) well, my TA ship's only 20 hours, so I'll work for you for 20 hours, and then I should get paid after that. And so my master's thesis was, you know, he presented a problem to the class, which was, here's 50 acres, go home, come back with a design for 50 acres of condominiums. And so we did that and I came back and then he began picking mine and working through mine in his office. And so then I was working on my project in his office during the morning. Then I go to class work for him at night in the, you know, in the evening and then go home and do homework for him. So I was working from like seven in the morning until midnight for three and a half years. And, but I, so I was working in the office on this stuff on the development side, plus also doing the design stuff while in class. And so I got the benefit of both sides of the equation.
1: So that condominium development deal turned into being a r- real life project then.
2: Yeah, it did. It was it started off as a thousand condominiums and then it went down to 316 condos, uh, 64 townhomes and 16 single family homes and it was a $100 million project on 50 acres.
1: Yeah, awesome. So, you know, you take that knowledge you gained from, you know, your TA ship and studying this in school and you make a career out of it. How did that transition go? Because rarely do you see someone with a background, let's call it real estate, or you know something related to the construction or building of real estate. You know, oftentimes you get engineers, accountants, doctors turn real estate investors. So, how do you translate those skills into the world of real estate investing itself?
2: Well, I was the only uh, student that had an undergraduate in something non-drawing, so mine was in history, but I took a lot of math and econ. And so, when I was in his office, I was doing all the development side. And so I was coming up with the of the financial performa for the hundred million dollars. So we were, you know, this is back before databases and you know, I was using a quatropo. This is really even before Excel became popular. And we were, you know, coming up with all these if-then statements to track the whole financials of it. And so I was on the working on the loan docs. I was working on the condominium docs. And so I got all that experience. And so working for him for six years, I also ran a couple other condominium projects for him during that period of time. So you know, I would go through the entitlements, getting the zoning, um, getting the permits, working with buyers, all those sorts of things. So it prepared me for both the financial side of real estate investing, as well as the design and then the build side. So I, I really got all three, you know, characteristics while working there for six years.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard the saying something along of it, along the lines, anyways. But it's a work to learn, not work to earn, right? And that's kind of what you did. Study. He reminded me of that option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, it's a great experience. So, you know, you get to take it into the real world and actually turn it into, you know, a career. So tell us about what you're doing these days. What are you involved in and what's your uh, kind of investing business look like?
2: Well, we have two companies, Coda Design Build, which implements our, you know, our projects. And then we have Coda Management Group, which is our investment platform where we initiate and facilitate it. And so we... And 2013, I began the transition into uh, self storage. And shortly thereafter, I sold off my multifamily. We were doing a lot of development prior to that in terms of mixed use, single family condominiums, townhomes, those sorts of things. And, you know, I started in, with the crash, I started buying apartments, but then I saw, you know, the benefits of self storage, which in essence is a- apartments without toilets. You know, it is like <laughs> the most simplified box you can possibly rent. And so the model. You know, I was blown away with the predictability and the modeling of it. And so we transitioned the portfolio to begin working and developing and uh, building a portfolio of self storage assets. And so that's what Coda Management does is we're, we just launched one stop self storage this past month when in our flagship store in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And then within the next 30 days, we're going to have uh, six other facilities all under the one stop self storage facility or awesome. branding, I should say.
1: Now, when you think about, when you hear, you know, someone with a background in architecture like yourself, Scott, you think someone designing beautiful, tall skyscrapers, magnificent multifamily buildings, you find yourself on the uh, self-storage side of things where, like you said, it's the most simplified, straightforward box you could imagine, right? So tell us, you know, how you uh, use your architecture skills in that space and what value you bring
2: there. Well, I I draw a mean box. I I don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, so... My design background comes into the planning. There's a couple of different things that we do. One, if we're looking at raw land, we have to come up with the plan, the site plan, the, the building plan, if you will, for the facility, What we're how we're going to implement it, how we're going to maximize it, how we're going to utilize the property to the fullest extent possible to maximize the value of it. And so that really falls under my purview with doing the design. If we're looking at a conversion, then when I'm going in and I'm assessing the building from an architectural point of view and saying, how do we... Convert or can adjust this building to accommodate self storage? Does it have the necessary requirements that we need to meet it? And, you know, what's it going to cost? How are we going to go about doing this? And then the third thing is if we're doing an expansion, then I assess this, the existing site, seeing what we can do and then how to maximize it. So it's in those three areas that we're really focusing on. And so within the last, you know, year, we brought on four facilities online that were all conversions. We have two new construction projects that we're working on self-storage, and then we just acquired one in Maine where we're, we're expanding the facility. So we're, we're implementing all three of these processes within you know, the design side of things.
1: Let's talk about the conversion. What does that look like? What types of buildings are you converting to self-storage?
2: We're looking for buildings that honestly don't meet the requirements for multifamily, and it's typically because of parking. So each of the buildings that we bought, so Wisconsin, there's Chicago, Wisconsin, Toledo, Dayton, and Louisville, Kentucky, they were all large, significant commercial buildings, but they basically maxed out the site and there's no way to get on site parking. And when you're converting a building into condominiums or apartments, the biggest restriction or requirement is on site parking. Yeah. And, uh, self so storage, because our demographic use is so low on a daily basis, we only need like four parking spaces, you know, total. And so, you know, these buildings were not able to be converted into apartments. And so those are the types of buildings that we're looking for, like large or commercial between 80, 100,000 square feet, and then converting those into self-storage.
1: Now, I'm sure economic and demographic drivers also played into your decision and to pivot from multifamily to self-storage. So what were you seeing there that you liked? What looked attractive to you? Why make the switch from multifamily to self-storage?
2: Well, when we were doing the big project or any of the projects, I don't think we had a feasibility report. It was more like an impact report, like how is this development gonna impact the community and what sort of you know, how's it gonna impact the schools, how's it gonna impact traffic, how's it gonna impact the tax basis of the community, those sorts of things. But within self-storage, the main difference driver for me is that we get a feasibility report. We can know what the supply-demand ratio is and then where we sit within that in determining Is this a good, healthy market for us to go into or should we avoid this market? And it's whittled down to like a one, three and five mile radius or in more rural locations, a 15 minute drive. And so we can steer away from communities if they're oversaturated with our product. And so that's where we can isolate and identify specific areas that we want to focus in on.
1: So you had better data in the self-storage space on the supply demand side as opposed to the multifamily space is what you're saying?
2: Absolutely. Huge amount of difference there. And then the other side of it is, you know, that was, those 400 units was $100 million in terms of value. You know, I can develop six, seven, 800 self-storage lockers for, you know, less than 10% of that. And so my exposure is far less, my risk levels far less, but the economic performance of it, you know, is equal to or exceeds the value of multifamily.
1: Now, one of the things you hear about the self storage space, Scott, is the recession-resistant component of it, right? So, you know, in times of you know uh, recession, you know, people are you know downsizing, looking for a place to move their stuff. In great times, people are collecting more stuff, right? So, can you talk to that aspect of the benefit of self storage? That was one of the things I began really studying
2: when we were progressing and moving into this, and especially in light of you know people's concerns about the COVID with the pandemic. How is this going to impact self storage? And as I went back and looked at it, I saw that, you know, during the last four major recessions and, you know, some of them may have been, you know, pandemic, was it really a recession because we only were one quarter in, so it didn't really fit the definition. Mm -hmm. But in each of those things, in each of those major recessions, there was like a slight downturn and then rebounded up two or 3%. That's where I came up with the term that I began using for our investors was recessionary resistant versus, I mean, a lot of people prior to that were saying recessionary proof. I don't think anything is 100% proof, but I like the term resistant because of the fact that how well it performed in recessionary markets. And the thing is that, you know, people resist change. They don't like change and self storage offers people a fairly easy way to address change without having to, you know, depart with stuff that they don't want necessarily prepared to get rid of.
1: Yeah, sure. I guess another component of that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but with self storage it seems to be a lot more passive than multifamily. You don't have the toilets like you mentioned, you don't have the tenants, you don't have the trash. You just have a still box concrete floor, right?
2: Yeah, I mean it's if we compare the operational expenses in multifamily it's about 55% ratio, 50 to 55%. Mm-hmm. With us, you know, we're anywhere from 25 to 35%. So that's that big factor in the difference between the cost basis and the management that you were describing there. And so, you know, when we look at their cost ratios, like the one we bought in Maine, we feel that we can go in there and improve the performance and increase the value of it just by improving the cost. And so we can, those costs were quite high and we felt that we could get those whittled down to about 25% of our overall gross income on it.
1: Yeah, sure. Now, can you kind of paint a picture of what a typical self-storage facility would look like or one that you guys are buying? Is it a multi-story? Is it a single story? Is it, you know, concrete pads, gravel drives? Can you kind of just paint a picture of what those look like typically?
2: Well, there's three types of self-storage facilities. Generally, the classes, I should say. Okay. Um, and the multifamily class A, B, and C, you know, is more representative of neighborhood or the quality of the investment. Right. Class C in self-storage represents more first-generational, more rural, you know, smaller. When I say first-generation, drive up. It may not be gated. It might be gravel driveway. Yeah. Um, But it's, you know, a smaller type facility. And we equate that to like a penny stock. It's just going to have, you know, performing, it's going to be consistent, but you're not going to have this huge appreciation. The next one is class B, which is more suburban, larger. So it's between like 100 and 400, maybe 500 units. And we consider that to be more like a class, a blue chip stock, but it might be climate controlled and it's probably, looks like class C, but it will be newer and paved. And then class A is more urban. And that's like either brand new or a conversion. That's usually multi-story because you're in an urban environment. And those are all drive-in facilities. So instead of drive up, you're driving into the building, the doors come down, and they're fully climate controlled. And so we're doing all three right now. We've been basically acquiring Class A conversions. We're developing Class B facilities, and we're acquiring Class C assets.
1: Now, one of the common business models in the multifamily space, Scott, is a value-add play, right? Now, mm-hmm. is that such a thing in the self-storage space? Is there any value you can provide? I mean, after all, it's a box, right? So not a lot of you know, sprucing up you can do to it. You, know, <laughs> you can't put new countertops in there and increase the rents. What kind of value-add plays are there in that asset class?
2: Well, there are. I mean, when we're doing a conversion, that's tremendous value-add. Right, there. okay. Mm-hmm. So and obviously, new construction, when we're building new, then there's value let's just focus on the expansion component or buying an existing facility. And there's a couple of ways we can do that. One is expanding the existing facility. So the one we're doing in Maine, we're adding value based upon improving the economic performance of it in terms of collections, in terms of raising rent, as well as decreasing expenses. So those three things, will see tremendous value add to the facility, but then we're also expanding it. So we're adding additional units to the site. And so between those things, we are doing it. We are making it a gated entrance and then also we're providing 100% online. So we have a call center and you can do all the docu-signs, everything remotely. And so that's the other way in which we're adding value is We're making it entirely touchless and, you know, a remote access facility.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now in the let's kind of take uh, mobile home parks, for example, you know, there's a lot of pushback from regulatory, you know, local municipalities, et cetera, on, you know, improving or expanding mobile home parks do you get any kind of that regulatory pushback in the self storage space or are most municipalities pretty receptive of this asset class
2: It depends I think of where we are in the recessionary cycle you know if you're deep in a recession then everyone tends to love you because you're the only one developing but you know we had that in River Grove and we've had that in uh, Green Oaks but you know other communities that we've gone into they've been really resistant towards self- storage conversions. You know, it's for whatever reason, it's the ugly stepchild. But if you think about it, it's as necessary in the American market as let's just, I don't want to say it's overly like a grocery store. It's a service that everybody's using. You know, everyone says, Oh, I don't want it, but then you use it. Right. And it's the (laughs) type of thing where, you know, you have to go to the grocery store, but you don't have to go to a self storage facility. But if you're living in an urban market or a market that is really expensive housing, it becomes a need because you can't expand you can't grow where you are but you can economically afford something different or if you're a business and you need a little bit of you know storage for your business I mean 50% of our clients are businesses and so in that sense it is needed
1: and i think there's kind of a funny psychological component to that Scott as just you know normal people we all have the tendency to buy more stuff right and kind of hoard things and we don't want to let go of what we've got we overvalue it right like that old bicycle in the garage you think you're going to start riding one day or whatever it might be. That stuff collects and adds up and takes up more and more expensive space in these urban markets.
2: Yeah. Well, the other thing is, I mean, the big change during the pandemic is that people are using their homes differently. And when I say homes, I'm not necessarily meaning a house, but I'm saying whatever home they have, right? Whether it be an apartment, condominium, townhome, whatever it may be. So we're seeing, you know, working out of your home, we're seeing educating out of your home. You're seeing exercising out of your home. So people need more space and they have to do something with their existing stuff. And so it's easier to if you're transitioning or you have to, you know, cycle things in and out. That's where we're seeing why the growth and why during the pandemic self-storage continue to increase during the pandemic.
1: Yeah, sure. Now I think multifamily, you know, maybe even single family is very understandable concept for people to go out and even invest on their own, right? You can go out and buy a house or buy a duplex or buy a small multi or partner up and, you know, Buy a larger multifamily, but the self storage space seems to be so niche from kind of your layman person that it might seem hard to kind of break into. Now, what avenues would your kind of average person out there have to investing in self storage?
2: Well, I think if you're going to compare it to someone, you know, buying a small apartment building, like a fourplex or, you know, sixplex or whatever it might be, that would typically be like a C type facility because it, you can buy them for, I mean, the one we bought in Maine, we bought for under $500,000 you know, it's not a huge facility, but we're going to be adding on to it to make it much bigger. And so that's the difference there. So you can buy an existing facility and improve the performance and still comparatively cost compared to multifamily or even less and get more units. But if, you know, people want to be an investor similarly to, you know, if I'm joining an investment group for an apartment building, then that would either be a B Or an A type facility where they're coming in and partnering in, but they're more of a a silent partner type in relationship type type thing.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now, do you have any kind of rules of thumb that you use when analyzing a deal, Scott? Any kind of metrics, any like price per unit or any kind of like grants you like to see? Can you walk through any kind of like just overall general rule of thumb numbers there?
2: Well, the first thing we look for is the saturation rate. So when we compare the square feet of lockers per capita, that is the first metric that we're always looking for. And so, in the general market across the United States, seven square feet of lockers per capita is where supply equals demand. So if you buy below that, then you're going to have good pricing. If you buy above it, you're going to have more difficult pricing. In markets along the East Coast, Florida, Texas, the West Coast, that is inching up between nine and 11 square feet per capita. I mean, Florida, the people are developing with nine and raising to Could you explain that
1: metric a little bit more for
2: those and myself that don't understand it? Sure. Absolutely. So what they do is, And they'll take in a three mile radius or in a five mile radius and they'll, they'll figure out how many facilities are in that radius and then how many lockers they have and put a total amount of square footage of lockers that are available in that market. And then they look at the population density to come up with what percentage of the population is, should be doing it or acquiring it. So if, you know, for instance, our facility in Wisconsin or Chicago, we had half a million people within three miles. 66% 66% of them are renters and our square foot per capita was under two at the time when we bought it. Oh okay, so, gotcha. it's
1: a square foot per capita measure. Square
2: foot of lockers per capita. Okay. And so when we looked at that, I was like, holy cow. Because on average, ten percent of the American population uses self-storage. So if we're okay. looking at that and the square footage per capita is two, we know that even if we add it, we're not gonna be anywhere near seven. And so seven is when, you know, you can't raise the prices. It takes you longer to lease up all those sorts of things. So if we're well below seven, then we can command the pricing we need. We can get it leased up. We can get the facility operating efficiently and effectively.
1: Would you say that it's accurate to say that this is a lower barrier of entry for new construction, you know, as opposed to like say multifamily?
2: Well, entitlements is the big question on that one. That's the biggest barrier of entry. So, and if you're doing a larger, I think. Multifamily might be easier because you can do a smaller project, especially in an urban environment, right? Okay. So if you're, but if you're looking for ease, it's a lot easier for us to, to promote a self storage facility because we don't have to do traffic analysis. We don't have to do parking. We don't have to do impact on the schools, on the park districts, all those other things that take up a lot of analysis. Because when, you know, you build a big, when I was developing big multifamily things, they're like, Okay, well, how many kids are gonna be added to the school district? Do we have enough chairs for each of the kids in the, you know, in each classroom? Are we gonna have to expand our schools? You know, what sort of, you know, pressure is this gonna be putting on the community and we'd have to address all those things or parking. It's like traffic. How many people are gonna be coming in and out of your facility? You know, how's that gonna impact the traffic? Do we need to add lights? Do we need to do all these different things? And for us it's like, well, we have typically four customers a day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just coming by (laughs) to add more stuff to their
2: unit, right? Or to take stuff, right? You know, it's just in or out. And so we don't have to do a lot of those things. So in each of the entitlement PUD type submissions that I've ever had to do, the packets are a lot less involved than multifamily, but the challenge is finding an area where it will be acceptable. And so each of the things that we've done is, if we looked at Wisconsin, Toledo, Dayton, and Louisville, they all were entitled for self-storage. Now we ran into opposition in each in Wisconsin, Toledo, and Dayton. Wisconsin, because they changed the definition from storage, because the building was originally storage and we were converting it into self-storage. So they gave us a certificate of occupancy immediately. But then they came back and said, well, we've changed the definition. So now you have to get it re-entitled. So when I say we had opposition, it was because they changed the definition. We had to go through the process. It was rather easy process for us to do because we said, hey, look, the building's already been storage. We're converted into self-storage. When we went in Toledo and Dayton, they both resisted us even though we were entitled. You know, we had the zoning and we said, all we're doing is converting a building into this. In both those communities, we faced some significant opposition in terms of what we were doing. And Dayton was empty for 40 years. It was completely vacant. And we're like, we're turning the lights back. on. How is this a bad thing?
1: Yeah, it's funny to see, you know, you start diving into the weeds like you just did there. And then, you know, your eyes start to glaze over. You're like, whoa, whoa, all of a sudden this sounded really complicated from building little square boxes to all of a sudden we're talking about entitlements and zoning and all this, you know, complication of legal impacts and traffic studies, et cetera, et cetera. It starts to kind of become more obvious why you need a trusted partner with the experience like you do.
2: Well, whether it's someone like ourselves or an architect, a local architect that can go through the entitlement process. I mean, that's what we hired in Maine because, you know, obviously I'm not going to fly out for a one hour meeting. And so we hired someone locally to represent us, but obviously I could review what they put together and tweak it the way we wanted and make sure that it was good and then they could represent us. So, you know, we do partner as well, you know, but at least we had the knowledge or, you know, the understanding of what was expected or how to go through the process. But more importantly, is like how to deal with oppositions. You know how to deal with challenges that come up. Like for instance, in Maine, they're like, "Well, you're over 440 linear feet from a fire hydrant, so you're making changes. So you have to add a fire hydrant." And we're like, <laughs> you know, that's not a small price figure. You know, yeah. that's a significant difference. And so, you know, we began working with them, like, what are some options that we could do, and why we were falling out of this class of the, you know, the National Fire Prevention Code and all those sorts of things, and. Our guy there was on top of it, but we also, you know, commenting and giving him ideas and how we can address this and those sorts of things.
1: Now, Scott, you probably have a bit more affinity for the nuts and bolts, for the physical structures themselves, for the entitlement process than your average person. Most people are just looking for an investment vehicle that serves their needs and lets them live the life they want, right? So what does this asset class do for those type of people? Well, I mean
2: it's I would say 50% of our investors are doing it mostly for tax shelters or tax structures. Okay. Um, the other 50%, I mean, both everyone's looking for growth, obviously, but the other 50% are just looking for growth. So I would say that what this offers is, you know, it's, it's a stable asset class, you know, incredibly stable in terms of cap valuation, in terms of performance. But on top of that, I mean, with our cost segregations and different things that we've been able to accomplish here, we've been able to create some great tax shelters, for our investors, you know, obviously, you know, it was funny during the elections and the debates, and you know, there were people, you know, were ripping on Trump for not paying taxes. My kid's like, I can't believe he's not paying taxes. I'm like, we're <laughs> doing the exact same thing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it was all legal, right? I mean, we're following the tax code, but people don't right. realize, you know, what creates shelters. I mean, the cost segregation that's been a huge model for us. We've done historical tax credits. We've done opportunity zones. You know, we've sold off cell towers. You know, these are each different things that we've done to enhance our investors' experience because we realize that it's more than just about the investment. It's also what other added value we can add for our investors. And so that's some of the benefits that we can provide. You know, If you're selling condominium buildings, you can't really do cost appreciation because you're just selling it over. It's all either long-term or short-term capital gains. Right. Um, but these are you know, different areas that we've been able to utilize.
1: Well, Scott, let's kind of take it back full circle at the beginning of the episode. I started off with kind of your reasons why, kind of going back to that. You know, what is it that's kind of keeping you going? Why are you doing this? What drives you? What motivates you? Talk about that aspect of your life, if you will.
2: Well, like I said, I've always enjoyed creating things, I enjoy developing. And right now, the creativity is not just on the architectural side, but it's also on the business and, you know, the overall concept that we're putting together. And, you know, that's sort of coming to fruition with us launching our own brand. And so here we are launching a, you know, we're going to be from Wisconsin to Maine of having our own brand out there. And so that's the next venture of what we're trying to do. And the idea is to create a portfolio of assets that we can package up as a bundle and then sell it off to a REIT. And so to me, that's the creativity of the structuring of the deals and putting those things together. And, you know, that's just something that I wasn't able to do as a developer, you know, either single family, multifamily, because you're always looking at per project as opposed to like, I'm putting together a portfolio of investment packages that will we can sell off to a REIT. So that's the the greater goal.
1: And when you're not investing in real estate, what do you like to do outside of that world? I guess
2: I think outside is the key word there. So I, I I enjoy doing things outside. You know, we live very close to the beach here, and you know, despite being in Chicago, we paddleboard about eight nine months of the year, and so that's one of the things we enjoy. We enjoy being down there just utilizing the lake, being close to it. So it's sailing, you know, water sports, those sorts of things and skiing activities, just spending time and doing things with my family. Those are, and friends, those are the things that we enjoy.
1: I love it. Yeah, I was just in Maine, coincidentally enough, last week, and did some quote unquote winter surfing in April, which felt like winter to myself. So I was like, I guess water sports up here are a thing, even in these colder months. For this, oh yeah, uh, I mean, there's guys, in,
2: <laughs> there's guys in Chicago who are in January that are out surfing in Lake Michigan with the six mil wetsuits on, and you know the whole hood and gloves and feet and all that sort of stuff. Yeah,
1: I had that last week. So yeah, fun stuff. Well, Scott, hey, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. Every episode, we wrap up with the lightning round, just a series of questions we like to fire at you. Are you up for it? Absolutely. All right. The first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what did you do to overcome that?
2: I think the biggest hurdle is, you know, obviously, I think every person deals with this, is when you're transitioning, and you're starting something of your own, it's credibility, right? How do I build credibility for myself and what I've been doing? And how do I get people to buy into what we're doing or what I'm selling? And I taught architecture at IIT, and I've been a real estate coach. And that's the biggest struggle that everyone says, you know, has is like, how do I convince people that I know what I'm doing? I'm like, okay, well, let's start with what you have and then build upon that in terms of building your story. And I don't think enough people appreciate their own story or the path to where they've gotten to where they are. And I think that's the biggest thing to realize is everything that you've done is an experience and people will appreciate that experience along the way.
1: Yeah. Sometimes it can feel like a chicken and egg thing, right? Like you need credibility to get a deal. You need a deal to have credibility. It kind of feels like a spiral and it's kind of hard for some people to kind of look from a 30,000 foot view. And I like what you said there, you know, kind of craft, you know, what's got you to this point and, you know, kind of craft your story and your successes to date. Absolutely. Well, it would just like, you know,
2: people say like, you know, I've never bought an apartment building. I'm like, well, have you bought a house? You know, have, have <laughs> yeah. you managed anything? Have you managed to, you know, have been a manager in a business? Okay, then what did you manage? let's talk about that. And so those are the areas in which we can develop that or build that.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. Scott, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success?
2: I wouldn't say one. I think it's overall. I mean, I enjoy getting up early. I enjoy a quiet time with my wife walking on the beach at 530 in the morning with our dog and the paddle boarding because it's quiet. It's still. I mean, there's times where the lake is rolling, but a lot of times the lake is totally flat and you're out there and the sun's coming up. And it's just like a complete rejuvenation. And you know, it's my time, my quiet time, if you will. And I just appreciate that. And so there's those sorts of things. I also have accountability. So I meet with accountability within my self-storage. And I also meet accountability on a personal level. I think those are important things to keep me focused and grounded and always looking to improve and grow. So that's just one of the things I've always been looking to do is just how do I continue to grow? And along that lines, I began a two-year journey with an organization called Transformation Center. And it's the whole purpose of improving in leadership. And so that's one of the things I... In fact, on Sunday night, I'm heading off for that and you know for two and a half days. And that will be something that I'm doing quarterly for the next two years.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, I think accountability group, whether it's just with your peers or people who are maybe just a couple steps ahead of you, is so important. In today's kind of digital age, you can reach out and connect with people online and jump on a Zoom call. So I do that myself. So yeah, totally agree with you there. Scott, do you have an online resource you find valuable in kind of your day to day?
2: Well, I get daily reminders in terms of either my mentor sends a weekly motivational Monday type video. That's one thing that I do online that I get from him that, you know, I've known him for seven years, but it's still good to get these refreshers in my head and those sorts of things. And, you know, I do have a routine, a habit of I use social media strictly for work. And so when I'm going on there, I'm looking for, Things that I can do for work. The only social media that I have specifically is just my household and a very small community. That's Instagram. And it's just a way for me to, you know, see what the kids are up to and interacting with them and just follow my relatives. But everything, all my other social media is strictly work. So those are the things that I'm doing on an online basis. When I go on there, it's not for me to be tracking different things for how do I utilize as a work tool.
1: Yeah. No, uh, it's a tough thing to do, right? Because it's it's such a trap. You get on social media and you think you're going to get on there and be productive. And next thing you know, you've been scrolling for 20 minutes and (laughs) have no recollection of time. So, Absolutely. Scott, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why?
2: Well, a big concept that we utilize in our office is The Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Crone, which is C-R-O-H-N. So no relationship to myself. (laughs) So I get no residuals off this. I'm making no money off this book. No shakedowns, but it's about the enneagram, and the enneagram is understanding different personality types. And these fourth-century monks came up with this concept, and it's amazingly accurate. I can't believe that you know many centuries later, it's it's still as accurate as when they created it. And it breaks people down into nine different categories, and it describes either when we're healthy or unhealthy, and how we relate to one another, and whether that be verbally or emotionally, and those sorts of things. And so once I got to understand who I was, then I could begin understanding like my family because my wife did it. She's the one who introduced me to it, and then we did have, had everybody in the office sort of take the test or go through it, so we can identify what they are, so we can have more healthy conversations or not react to how when someone says something to you. But then we've also began trying to understand our customers and our clients and how they would react, but it's helped us improve our interaction with them that we can solve problems for them better.
1: It's awesome. That book one more time was called The Road Back to You. The Road Back Back to You. Okay, awesome. We'll link that book in the show notes if our audience members want to check that out. Scott, last question in the lightning round. If you're to go back and give advice to your 25-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell yourself?
2: Be patient. (laughs) You know, I started my company at 28 and I'm like, man, I don't know what I didn't know at that point in time. But you know, it's maybe I was good, maybe it was bad that I started so young. But, you know, I thought I knew everything at 28 and, you know, how wrong I was. So be patient (laughs) and, you know, enjoy the process.
1: I love it. Scott, if people want to learn more, reach out, maybe learn about the world of self storage investing or opportunities that you guys might have. Where's the best place for them to connect with you, learn more about all this stuff?
2: Well, thank you for asking that. That's kind of you. So one thing I would like to offer your listeners, if they want to learn more about how to invest in self storage and they email us, and they reference this show. We will send them a free feasibility report of one of our past projects. But these reports are like 180 pages. And they just don't talk about the property. They talk about the market in general, not only at a local level, but a national level and how to understand it. And they're, they're great resources just to learn more about it. So Fantastic. if they want to reach out, they can reach us at info at CODA, C-O-D-A-M-G, as in management group.com. That's info at CODA mg.com and if they want to have a call then we can certainly have a call to talk about you know if they come across a building and they think it might be good you know this industry is way too small we're not going to steal anything but if they want us to sign a non-circumvent non-disclosure we'll certainly be happy to do that but we can we'll put together a free analysis for them in terms of like what the saturation level is is it good is it worthwhile to go forward with this and then they can begin researching it more
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. That's info at CodaMG.com. Send an email there, reference the show, and you'll get that 100 plus page report. uh, That feasibility report goes into the details of a typical self-storage deal. Scott, thanks so much for that. As we're wrapping up here, is there any parting piece of advice that you'd like to leave with the audience members? Maybe something I should have asked you that I didn't. Well, I think
2: you know when people are beginning to get into it, they always say, I want to do something. And it's usually that to me signals fear or lack of confidence and you know to me the biggest mindset is don't tell me what you want to do tell me what you are doing so if i meet you don't tell me oh, i want to get into what you're doing like you can say a lot differently and just turn, you know i'm in or i'm looking to get further into self storage i enjoy this asset class how do i get more involved you know those are the, be the to me it's a mindset difference it's like either i'm hoping to do something or i'm actively doing it and if you're actively doing it that's a great space to be in
1: Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been an awesome conversation. Look forward to having you back on sometime in the near future.
2: That'd be great. Thanks, Jacob.
1: Thanks so much. Take care. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Scott Crone. Hey, what an awesome conversation that was. I hope you got so much value from it. Well, if you want to learn more about what Scott and his team are doing in the world of self-storage, you can find their website at CodaMG. That's That's codamg.com. And for that free investing guide, you can email info at Codamg.com. Well, hey, we've got some really exciting stuff on the horizon. Next week, I'm going to go into a deep dive of a small apartment deal I just am almost finished up with. It's an eight-unit deal. I'm going to go into all the details on that. Really exciting. As always, we're always looking to connect with new folks just like yourself. I love talking about real estate. So if you have something you want to reach out and discuss, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at www.jacobeyers.com. Well, hey, until next week, engineer the lifestyle you want.
0: You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire.